I'm not a war journalist, I'm an anti-war journalist. I was always thinking about how can I share my experience with the people who did not leave Germany, for example, or how can I explain what's going on in this world? And with virtuality, this is a key to make people feel how it is to be there and give them the freedom to have a look around. Welcome to the Digital Doha podcast, our brand new series focused on bringing listeners topical segments and informative conversations with local experts, exploring the cutting edge of emerging media happening in the dynamic international capital that is Doha, as well as the greater Middle East. I'm your co-host, Spencer Stryker, digital media professor at Northwestern University in Qatar. And I'm joined by my co-host, Natasha Das, media information and technology student at NUQ. Julia Lieb is a journalist, photographer, and filmmaker specialized in the production of virtual reality. She has traveled to and reported on the most dangerous places in our world, starting with the warlords in the Congo, the revolution in Egypt, the war in Libya, and the isolated dictatorship in North Korea. By getting this close to the action, she's also risked her life when she was kidnapped to be silenced as a witness. She's a pioneer in using virtual reality and was one of the first in Germany to use it to document life in crisis areas. She believes virtual reality can be used as an instrument of peace because of how it allows us to see all perspectives of a story. It is my honor to welcome Julia to our show. You went from starting in Germany to getting interested in international relations, international politics, getting interested in language and other cultures, and et cetera. But then you branch out into war zones. So what is it about that that attracts you? What is it about war zones that attracted you to that work? I'm interested in human beings and in war zones. Um, you can... Um, yeah, you can understand how human beings are functioning. Mm. The good and the evil is very close and sometimes it's in, within the same person. And this is just very fascinating. Who are we and why do we do this to ourselves? So war zones in a way gets at a core central aspect of human nature. Like we're both good and evil and somehow war accelerates our understanding of that. Yes, and it is very um, surprising that um, history is repeating and repeating itself. So how mm. is a war starting and why is it starting? Why don't you understand that um, the, the end will be a lot of destruction and not only destruction, um, physical destruction, but also destruction in the heads. Mm. So uh, for me, it's just like, so surprising that it starts always over and over again and um, you always think it's the last time so in germany I, we had this horrible war and our parole was no, never ever war again mm. and we live in uh, like in peace for 70 years now right. but um 
maybe this was the reason to understand why what happened to my ancestors why is it happening again all over and why can't you stop it is it possible to stop it with pictures is it possible to stop it with documentation is it possible to stop it when you create virtual reality experiences it's just like i want to i'm not a war journalist i'm an anti-war journalist ah that's that's brilliant yeah you talk about the experience of germany in the war and about this repetitious cycle of violence where it seems the new generation forgets about the previous generation's experiences and we see the cycle of violence continuing forward. So let's seg into your work in VR. How is it that VR holds potential for creating an, under, an appreciation, understanding for the horrors of war and, and ideally stopping war from occurring? How is it that VR can, can assist in that? For me, I was always um, thinking about how can I share my experience with the people who did not leave Germany, for example, or how can I explain what's going on in this world mm. and how can I reach these people? So I started, for example, in North Korea, um, I started to publish a really like aesthetic coffee table book. Uh, because I wanted to reach um, people who um, are not so interested in North Korean politics, but they go through the aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And then if they open the books, they can see um, more and more information and also some video clips and they um, yeah, get a different approach of this topic. And with virtual reality, it was very clear for me when, the, when I uh, used first time the cardboard and I was um, in a Syrian refugee camp and I was looking on the floor and looking behind and I saw the tent and I totally understood this is the key to make people feel how it is to be there and gives them the freedom to um, have a look around by themselves. Right. This was, um, I think this was a turning point for me and I um, ordered right away this equipment because in Germany it was, I was a very early adopter. I mean, in Germany there was no store I could buy it. Yeah. And so I had to um, order my equipment from a French company. And so I started with zero experience. I really liked your point about being an anti-war journalist and in an in interview, you said that you think of VR as being an instrument of peace. And then you also mentioned that you'd like to create a VR encyclopedia. So I was wondering if you could speak more about that. And then my second question was, um, you were one of the first people in Germany to start using VR. And so could you speak more about your experiences and what was it like being an innovator in that field? Yeah, this was quite interesting because um, this equipment arrived in my uh, home this day I was leaving to Congo. So I took all this equipment and I was reading the instructions in the plane and I had no idea how this works. And then I arrived in Congo and I went to the warlord. So I have to go over no man's land into the jungle. Um, it's called the kingdom of a warlord. But um, of course, there is no electricity. And I had the six GoPros, and so I had to ask these rebels to um, get a battery out of the car and carry it three days into the channel. So I had electricity. It was the first uh, challenging uh, situation. 
And then it's also difficult to explain the people what I'm doing because most of the people they know what a uh, camera is, but they have no idea what this is. And especially because I don't want to be in the picture all the time. So for example, in Transnistria, it's like a facto state in um, Moldova. I put this camera and I was running away. So I will not be um, in the film and the people thought like, oh my God, there must be a bomb. And everyone was throwing themselves oh, <laughs> on the floor because who is putting something like this there and runs away. Yeah. So there are a lot of, um, sometimes funny and sometimes not so funny experiences. Uh, I want to follow up with Natasha had uh, asked about your vision for a, um, a, a VR encyclopedia, which I thought was fascinating. And we both picked up on that in our research for the interview. Can you speak more to that? What does this um, VR encyclopedia look like? And it, so um, for me, there must be a reason why you are using the headset and you are isolating yourself visually 100% and also um, yeah, from, your, from your environment. There must be a reason. And I don't want to wear this um, headset in, to have a, like a normal experience. I want to beam myself to places I will probably never be able to go by myself. Yeah. So this is what I'm doing. I'm going to the most remote areas in our world uh, areas that people they don't even know that they exist mm. and there I camcord 360 and um, I try to be very neutral mm. and um, just like an ongoing process and this experience becomes um, longer and longer and longer so for example um, I camcorded an entire 360 movie in Transnistria this is uh, a state that has their own um, president, its own police, its own prisons, ministries, um, its own currency, its own license plates. They have everything what a country needs, but international recognition. So officially, this country does not exist. Right. But you can beam yourself in this place that officially does not exist. Or I go to Chile, there's a former German sect, and you can go in the middle of this crazy place where they created their own circle of reality uh, that was totally isolated from the rest of the world. Or you can go to Belarus and you are on the Stalin line. It was a French, French, uh, front line from the former UDSSR. And yeah, you can, or you are in the middle of Uganda of a South Sudanese refugee camp and you see all these people arriving and they it's just like the first station, they are asking for water mm. and they start to build a state within a state that is not their own. So, or you're in Brazil in the favelas, it's also like a, um, a city within a city with its own rules and with their own laws. And this is what interests me, this very remote experience, social experiences. Mm that it allows you to go to these amazing places that, as you say, most people will, will not go to in their lifetime. But in a way, that is what photojournalism has been about and, and, and you know, embedded documentary, that sort of thing. So I'm curious to ask you about the affordances of VR. What is it about VR 360 video that takes this to the next level, this ability to see and experience places and, and events that are so difficult otherwise to experience. 
So all media are framed, no matter if you look at the computer, uh, if you look at your mobile phone, if you look at an oil painting, a photography, um, television, everything is framed in our lives. But the real revolution of 360 is the freedom of the frame. It's a liberation of framing. This is what I think uh, makes a difference. And this is the only media that um, puts you right into the scene. You don't look at it, you are in the middle of it. And this is a unique uh, characteristic of uh, 360 and virtuality. Hmm. Uh, you've talked about um, VR and history. So I, I do a project that's called History Adventures. And what I've tried to do is uh, create a narrative driven, like using stories of people in history and using interactivity to try to make history feel more real, more alive, more impactful, to create some kind of um, emotional resonance of history. And so can you speak maybe to that, your uh, statements that we've researched about you saying how um, you'd like to see a history book that is essentially VR. I'm very, uh, uh, very sorry that I did not have this equipment during the Arab Revolution or the Arab Spring because this was history in the making. Mm. And I just regret that at this time it was not possible to put like a 360 camera in the middle of the Tahrir Square in Egypt. Yeah. When you're in the middle, when history is written, and the first time in the thousand years old history of Egypt that a pharaoh steps back. Right. So, that's the reason why I think um, this would be a very, very uh, wonderful instrument for history books because it makes things so lively, you know? People see the faces, they see the emotions, and when you see emotions, you're part of it. Mm. Yeah, back to your original point about how there's the cycle of violence and people forget about the horrors of war. Um, you know, so I guess as a thought experiment, what would it have been like if, if you had 360 video of World War II, for example? What do you think uh, the modern relationship to war might be if, let's say, we had, you know, 360 video of, uh, of the firebombing of Tokyo or um, the storming of the beaches of Normandy or something like that? Yeah, this, uh, I think it would be um, a very powerful instrument um, for young people especially, who never um, had any experience with war. Yeah, and it connects to game, it connects to video games as well, because like in my own experience, uh, like when you play video games even that are about history, it does give you that intense visceral sense of what it would have been like, even if it's pure entertainment. Like for example, I played a game where you, uh, you're part of the Battle of Stalingrad and they did an amazing job, the, uh, the game designers. I think it's, it's an old Call of Duty game, but uh, they recreated what the city looked like during the worst part of the Battle of Stalingrad. And you can never really forget what a horrific war zone it was, even if it was actually meant to be an entertainment game. You, you, you nevertheless get a visceral impression of history. I think this is a very interesting um, movement that the gaming industry is also um, focusing on more serious teams. For example, um, uh, a friend, a student from Ethiopia, he got money from the Ethiopian government to um, develop a video game. 
But in this video game, you can only proceed if you have like corruption with a policeman or with any official uh, person you meet. So it's a very social critical game that to people they didn't know because it's a different generation. And when they understood what they were paying, um, they, they left already. But um, I think it's um, it's a very smart uh, way uh, to um, be uh, critical and um, do it with this techno technological entertainment sector. This is uh, a very new uh, development and I think it's interesting. Well, absolutely, actually we have a pending grant uh, and Natasha's gonna be part of this. We have a pending grant for about enormous amount of money. It's like a $5 million grant to use uh, games for climate change, uh, for use game-based learning techniques to bring awareness about climate change. So I'm very interested in that topic as well. Going back to your story, you started as a still photographer. And I was wondering what was the moment when you realized you wanted to expand into virtual reality? Um, I am still a photographer. I use 360 mainly to um, get information because when I go to places, I don't have time. I don't have a chance for a second round because I go inside and I have to leave. So of course I go there, I write, uh, I make my pictures, but making a picture is also kind of manipulation because I take a picture and I decided I will show this and I decided at the same time that I won't show the rest. Right. And this is, for example, a very, very interesting uh, app from Eric Espick, uh, Frame Switch, because this app is a real perspective change. You can be, you can be in the middle of a war zone and have to take the decisions uh, every war reporter has to take. What will I camcord and what will I not show. And 360 is um, for me uh, a very, yeah, it has a high uh, density of information and in war it is important to know all these details. For example, what's, I was always interested, what is outside this war picture? And 360 is the answer. And especially in war, there's always, in every war I have been, there was manipulation from both sides. And um, so if you see war crimes, you know, I want to see, is it really Syria or is it from a different co uh, conflict? What kind of uniforms are the people wearing behind? Is it really a mountain? Is there a moshee? Is it a mosque? Is it really this area? There's so much information and I don't have so much time actually. And I want people, the users to beam themselves there and have a look for themselves and also see things that I did not uh, see. Yeah, because whenever I look at uh, history photographs or even uh, if you're watching a history uh, TV show, like I've been watching uh, The Nick, which is about the beginning of uh, surgery in New York in 1900. Boardwalk Empire is about the bootleggers in Atlantic City in the 1920s. And you see a shot, and I agree with you completely. I see the shot, and then I'm always wondering, what's on the other side of the frame? You know, what else is going on here? I want to walk into that historical image and I want to walk into that scene. And so it's very interesting to hear you uh, express it that way, that that's what VR could potentially be, is here is the shot or an idea of a shot, but now walk into the shot and explore further. 
and also turn around and see are there different journalists or not. Sometimes you have this picture and you really think you're in the middle of a war zone. And then if you would go one step behind, mm. you see 10 other journalists taking pictures. Mm. So it's a totally different context. It's not fake because it's real, but it's just like a, a, a framed reality. And um, I think 360 um, is also a very good way to bring back credibility to journalists. Ah, the concept of, as you say, bias or framing, showing one thing but not another, you lose that, don't you? And you can potentially, you're making it more user-driven experience. Yes, and I also, I don't have anything to hide. So I want to be transparent. And if there is a 360 camera, I also, I still work, I take pictures, I write, but I don't have anything to hide. And I want to um, bring back this transparency to the users. It's interesting, the idea of bringing back transparency to the users. Do you think that there ever has been pure transparency in, in journalism or has there, I mean, maybe this is a little off topic, but actually it connects to this idea that you're talking about with, with AR, VR and this affordance of, 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 ta of, you know, of letting the user guide the experience. But do you think that there has ever been pure transparency in journalism or has it always been a guided viewpoint or a biased viewpoint? I think media, all the medias were always manipulated. Um, there's no media that is not manipulated, but um, it's much more easier nowadays to manipulate videos or pictures than 360. And um, I can tell you about a very concrete example. Um, during the um, anniversary of the Egyptian revolution, I got abducted in the Tahrir Square. And a guy was uh, camcording it with his uh, iPhone. So the story is a different story, but it was over and I uh, tried to have a normal life. After four years, I saw this video in all these networks and in German television. Uh, this was uh, um, proof how the refugees tried to rape German women in this uh, New Year's Eve in uh, a German city. So somebody took this video um, it was very easy. They just um, muted it and uh, uh, made like a closer look. And it was over 1 million times clicked as a totally different, I mean, it was taken out of context and was spread millions of times. And so of course I, uh, it was a, I mean, it was a, um, uh, it was a surprise it was me and I could identify myself and uh, make clear that it's not this event but with 360 this would have never been possible because 360 you would have seen this is an Al Hilton hotel there are the Egyptian flags mm -hmm. this is not Germany this is Egypt and um, so oh, wow. I really believe 360 has so much more um, yeah, so much more details and uh, it's much more difficult to fake uh, 360s on a normal movie or a normal picture. It was a one year anniversary of this Egyptian revolution. I went back to make a follow up. Yeah. Then I got abducted. And 2016, this video came in a totally different context mm. out. And I mean, even New York Times contacted me and people from Hungary and Poland, they said like, you're still in our television as proof of what's happening with the German woman. And this is so, uh, it was so easy to fake it. And you get millions of 
uh, light or fuse. Can you imagine this? Everybody can do this. A kindergarten child could fake it. So in the faked video, I'm just curious about this. So they, they tried to say you were in Germany now, even though it originally the video had happened in Egypt. Is that correct? Yes, because my identity was not cleared. And when I got, got abducted, I was not interested in putting my name there. Right. So, um, um, I mean, of course, I went to the police in Egypt and also German television knew about it. But um, I, nobody knew that I'm German and that's me. So, uh, it was, um, yeah, was a coincidence that I was German and was a German story with the refugees uh, 2016 and that I could identify myself. I see. Oh, I see what happened there. Okay, so they manipulatively, they took this video, they thought they could get away with it, yeah. uh, but then it turns out that you were too familiar with the video, you found it, and then you exposed it. That's what happened. Yes. <clears throat> this it would have not been possible because everybody would have asked, where is the cathedral from the city? Where is the, why are there Egyptian flags? Um, why is there a Nile Hilton hotel? And so... You know what I what I mean. This is um, yeah. It's much more. Um, it, it, you need much more effort to uh, really fake three sixty. Sure. So once again, it's sort of a um, potential um, antidote to the new trend of the deep fake, which is you know where you're going to change people's voices and then you know change what their lips are saying and things like that. But it's very it's much harder to control and manipulate. A piece of video if it's a full 360 uh, experience. What do you think is the future of VR given, and 360 video given how important it is and the big role it could play with giving journalists more credibility? I strongly believe that it is um, obligatory to camcord 360 from crisis zones because mm. As we just discussed, it's so easy to manipulate, and manipulation is part of every war. And um, I think we have a problem with, uh, yeah, with journalism. There's a, journalism has a big uh, trust issue, you know. Um, the credibility of journalists is tested, and I think this would be a very good answer to show that it's not only about opinions, but it's also um, about information and data and. When we really live in the uh, era of data, we need to uh, be very, very um, careful what we are, um, yeah, what we are gathering in crisis zones because this information leads to action, you know, and so the information has to be as broad as possible. Is it safe to say that um, Germany is more concerned about data? Uh, and, you know, the use of, of big tech and manipulating data than other countries, United States in particular. Is that in the culture of Germany? Um, the Europeans are very, we have a very um, strange relationship to our own data. So we have our own European uh, laws that make it really nearly impossible to um, have your own little business because you have to ask everybody for the data you need for everything permission. Yeah. It's good on the one side, but I mean, it's very old fashioned on the other one. So um, of course, American companies, they are 
they're gathering data like China does, but Europe has a very uh, unique um, relationship to giving out data. Yeah, exactly. Much more uh, strict and concerned about it. And I, I, I've often thought maybe that's partially because the companies that are all interested in collecting data are American companies. So that's part, that's part of it. It's also probably your unique experience. Um, but in particular, you have this uh, rule, right? The right to be forgotten. You have a movement called the right to be forgotten. Does that influence your thinking about ARVR, this, your, your concerns about um, data? Um, I mean, if I would camcord 360 in Germany, I should ask every single person who is in this picture if they are okay with it. So it's impossible. Um, I cannot bring it to a public space because I should ask every single person if they are okay that they are there. And I need it written. Uh, so they take it too far. They make it almost mm -hmm. impossible to do the work in that sense. What it's also part of the history because it's the, I mean, now we have a very liberal, liberal government, but we have been in under a horrible dictator. And if this wrong person has all the status from every single citizen, um, then, I mean, then you really have problems. Yeah, exactly. So it stems from the very unique history of, of Germany. I want to ask you about uh, what do you think are some of the more interesting projects happening right now in the AR, VR space with regard to journalism? Can you name like certain... Uh, projects or innovations you see going on. You mentioned uh, our colleague, Eric Espig's frame switch. We actually have him, he's actually a guest on this show. He's our first guest in the series, believe it or not. But uh, any other projects maybe you can speak to that you find inspiring or interesting in the space? Um, to be honest, the best project that I know right now, they come from Qatar. And um, I had this uh, journalist resident, Rota Panda, and she, um, she's a girl from Nepal, a student from Nepal, and she went with a Nepalese porter uh, in 360. And this is what I like. I like this classical documentary style. Um, it's a change of perspective because you always only see this people and you know they have these pictures in the offices and they climb Mount Everest and mm -hmm. who took this picture, you know? who made it happen. And these people are invisible. And Rosa uh, Pande, she showed um, the work of this invisible people. And I think it's the first time ever that um, the, yeah, there's a 360 um, movie about the perspective of an invisible person. Mm -hmm. This is what I really like. Um, and I think uh, Mariam, Aldupani, um, she is just amazing because I think she's one of the few who is able to make 360 movies out of Yemen. And Yemen is a total forgotten war. Yeah. We don't have, we have every day millions of pictures on Instagram, but where are the pictures from Yemen? Where are the pictures from Somalia? Mm. And uh, Mariam, she is um, giving us a opportunity to beam yourself into Sana'a. Uh, I mean, it's a totally closed country, it's a closed city, mm. and you are able, thanks to her, to have a look, and you never know what's happening. Maybe this 360 experience will be history because you can see some buildings that don't exist anymore in the future. Uh, yeah, amazing. By the way, uh, Miriam Aldubani is the second guest in this podcast series. <laughs> 
So it's it is a small world. <laughs> small world, yeah. So that's amazing. You've mentioned already two of our guests, and you're the fifth guest, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, but this is an interesting thing. So when I started with uh, virtual reality and 360, uh, there was nobody. So I went to uh, forums uh, on the internet, and there were people from Hong Kong and New York, and we were just like, I don't know, 10 people helping each other, and one person stitched my, my Congo material. I always sent him the hard drive. I never met him in personality and person. He was just like stitching it, sending it back. So it's a very small world, but a very supportive world. Yeah, and in many ways, uh, one theme that's emerging is that we're at the beginning of something big, um, you know, and that uh, it reminds me in some ways of beginnings of other media technology uh, innovations like maybe the very beginning of YouTube when no, you know, nobody really knew what that was about but now it's become very mainstream or we even compared it a little bit to the beginning of editing in the early 20th century with Sir, Sergei Eisenstein like you know inventing montage theory and in many ways it's sort of that creative laboratory where a lot of things are possible and we're kind of it's being invented before our eyes. It's difficult in all war zones. It's difficult because, for example, it's a total different example now. But when I went to the favelas in Brazil, oh. they are um, dominated by two gangs. I had this big uh, 360 Insta Pro camera with me, and I was camcording it, and people reacted very aggressively because they don't know what it is. And if you're in an active war zone, it looks like a bomb, you know, yeah. uh, strange sound. Um, it's difficult to use this equipment um, on the ground, especially when it's um, there's a political tension. Yeah, it speaks to maybe <clears throat> the state of the technology, because, you know, if you think about it, uh, maybe if you go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, if you're in a war zone and you're doing vid video work or whatever, you have a huge camera right and then you look very very uh what's the word conspicuous obvious but now you have smaller cameras right or you can be documenting on your phone so perhaps that's could be a trend for ar vr as well like right now it's very cumbersome and conspicuous but maybe in the future it can be done i know. hope so yeah i really hope so i mean of course we have this um, small cameras but the quality is not as good as the big ones but um yeah, also the big cameras, they are not really reliable. When it's too hot, they shut off or they eventually have to start and then you don't have sound. So um, there is still a, a technological way to go. Mm. And I also think when the headsets become better, virtual reality will have a totally new um, yeah, uh, push. Mm -hmm. Because now I can camcord in 11K, but I cannot watch it. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit, like your other unique experiences you've had. You mentioned favelas and how the two gangs were very paranoid. You mentioned the lack of good VR stuff coming out of the current conflict in Israel-Palestine. Can you speak to maybe other unique experiences you've had doing AR VR work in different hotspots? Yeah, so I mean, for example, this is interesting, the favelas in uh, Brazil, because they understood the media. This was the reason why they came with weapons and they were like really uh, not friendly and they made it clear that I should go away because the gangs, they have um, two different colors on their Kalashnikovs, mm -hmm. one blue and one red. 
and you see everything, you know, and if I publish this, you could see, for example, that this guy with red Kalashnikov is going to this head and the other one there. And this is, uh, for me, it's, this information is not interesting, but for them, it's uh, it can decide over life and death because when the police knows where they live, um, it's, it's an easy target. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm also interested in this, um, like uh, you, Spencer, with this historical um, background. So for me, Europe is, I mean, nowadays Europe is a, a peaceful continent, uh, but um, only some years ago, 10 or decades ago, I mean, there were war, was a war in Yugoslavia and it's still is visible. So when I go there, when I go there on vacation, I always have my camera with me and I find this bunkers and I go inside and if I'm on a boat, I go inside the bunker and I see still and I can feel this war and it's still there and people are reminded every day about it because it's not in the news, it's not in the movies, but physically you still ask yourself, why do you need this bunker? And then it's still, it's very, um, yeah, it's very, very vivid memory and also when I go to Croatia there are all these beautiful uh, hotels and then you see this big bombed hotel mm. yes um, my focus is somehow always on war and <laughs> um, I don't know why it's I, I'm on a mission but I don't know who gave, who gave me this mission so it's just like Maybe it's because Europe has this history. I don't know. Sounds like it's a calling, like it called you more than it was a conscious mm -hmm. decision in a way you were drawn to it. Sounds like um, recording the, in a way like the, uh, the, the memory of war in Europe, like going and finding these vestiges and then in a way bringing them back to life or showing that they're still, you know. Yeah, because um, a lot of people who lived through war, they don't want to talk anymore about it, mm. especially the older generations, but the energy is still there. So also in Germany, you know, when the people came back from no matter where they were uh, in the prisons, um, they never talked about it, but the energy is still transmitted over generations. And this is, um, I want to make it visible. But that sounds like an amazing piece right there. A series on the the vestiges of war, these locations that still resonate with the memory of war that are unspoken. Nobody talks about it. It doesn't mean that it's not there. You can feel it, but you cannot uh, articulate it. So I have to show it somehow. Mm -hmm.